Hey, 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 yeah. Welcome to the Growing Up Fishes podcast, episode 170. It's crazy, man, 170 episodes. Yeah, man. Right? Um, it's me and Marty this week. Uh, so we had the gentleman who was supposed to come on. There was a bit of a miscommunication as to what time. Um, so we'll get him on uh, next week. Um, we figured it out, but there was some, he, he can't make it at the moment. So we'll get him on. We've had some issues this week with the guests and some other stuff, but we'll be back on track next week. I've just been traveling so damn much and everything else. And um, I'll spend some time this weekend and get everybody booked up and uh, make sure there's no more problems. Um, track next week, I've just been traveling so damn much. Where are we going? Oh, okay. There we go. Um, so, uh, what's up with you, Marty? Um, shit. Hi, can you guys hear me now? Oh, yeah, there's Roger. Do you see that? We're live. Potent's muted. Yeah, we're, we're live. Yeah, Marty. So, yeah, uh, let's see. I just, uh, finishing all the lights in the grow room. So I've got in the, in the flower room. And so now I have the ones left to do in the bedroom. Um, wire up their electrical cables to the controller. All the fans are in, so put in the four inch inlet fan and an eight inch output fan. Marty, can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, but I can't hear and you at all. Everything is working great. And so, um, yeah, just basically uh, working all day at my job and then come home and work on the gardens until I get them done. Basically, my life at the moment. So it's going to be uh, uh, probably like the middle of next week, I think, before everything finally gets done in the flower room, just based on shipping. I'm still waiting on some media to get here. I can never get uh, Caben to email me back about some media. So that was kind of disappointing. I wanted to try out his media he was talking about, but couldn't make that happen. So getting the lava rock delivered from a local place and then some hydrogen shipped in. Um, so yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be fun. How about you? What are you up to, Steve? Yeah, I just got back from the um, the Aquaponics Association's conference. It was a lot of fun. Went out there to Kentucky. Um, got to see a bunch of the aquaponics peoples. Um, shout out to uh, uh, Dirt Breakdown. Um, it was really cool hanging out with him. He had a, a issue with his... Um, hotel booking or something but I locked out because they gave me two queens instead of a, a king so that last night he was there I was able to hook him up so that worked out which was cool it's funny how the universe works sometimes and then um yeah I went is, that, is that his handle on uh Instagram I think he's I think I remember him commenting on something yeah so that was cool to be able to like you know provide so that was cool so then um, we went to the, on Sunday, uh, it was cool giving a talk, got a chance to talk about um, different designs, um, you know, stuff that works, stuff that doesn't. Um, there was a really cool presentation on um, 
by one of the gentlemen who's working on green relief where they did a really good breakdown of like tissue analysis and chemovar analysis and everything. And they showed that the aquaponics was the strongest, um, but they found that it wasn't quite as, as high as some of the others, but at the same time, they also had a smaller pot size for that. So it wasn't really a fair, I guess in that regard, it wasn't quite fair because, you know, when the pot's half the size, it kind of limits part of its potential as well in a dual root zone. So, um, but uh, the chemovar wasn't even, I mean, it was sky, sky high. Um, they're finding, uh, or at least the stuff that they were talking about was about 14% higher on average THC, 7% higher CBD, um, which is higher on the THC than we found in terms of gap um, than the soil controls. But um, certainly uh, right in the same range that we've seen in, in CBD, big increases in both, you know, THC and CBD in particular. Um, is, that to in, is that in comparison to their uh, dual root zone harvest? Yeah, and that was dual root zone with DWC. So that was really cool to show that versus, you know, just DWC or no, versus um, they did like a, 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 they called it aquaculture, which was like a cocoa core, I think, mm -hmm. or some kind of other inert soil that they just ran aquaponic water through. Um, and then they ran uh, hydroponics as well. Cool. Again, it just goes to show, it showed really you know more on why it is that you should be doing a dual root zone planting versus other methodologies, which don't give you the control and um, simply don't give you anywhere near the chemovar and, and terpene expression. Because again, if you're not, if you don't have those microbes there, they're not inoculating that plant. They they function kind of like vaccines do, um, you know, and exposing that plant to a bunch of things that are non-pathogenic that are going to stimulate that immune system and really increase the, the terpene production. And, you know, you don't have that, that kind of ability to boost that without it. And same thing with like um, dialing in your nutrients for your different chemovars and stuff without killing your fish. Um, you know, you absolutely need that to be able to dial it in. Otherwise, you simply don't have that level of control and, and predictability, especially when you scale. Um, you know, you simply do not have that level of individual plant control that you, you need to have. You know, if, you, if you can't predict your yields and get, you know, predictable product, you know, there's no point in you doing it. And there's a, a couple of interesting people there that were doing some aquaponic cannabis stuff and there's some interesting theories. But, um, you know, it was pretty obvious they hadn't done it to scale or, or any kind of length of time. There's lots of people that are, are jumping into it that uh, have some pretty, pretty, pretty entertaining ideas on, on how to do stuff, but just, you know, again, haven't actually run it at any kind of scale. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear. I mean, not, I'm all for interesting ideas, but generally when people start, like, proclaiming that their ideas are the best or better than something else, when they... A lot of times haven't even finished a run with them yet or maybe one or two run like nobody nobody's an expert after doing it twice like it's just what it comes down to like there i don't care what you've grown before or what you did before or any of that if this is your second time growing cannabis or third time growing cannabis you're just not an expert and i you know that's just my own personal opinion but i don't I don't think that you should be portraying your I don't even like to portray myself as an expert because I don't feel like the stuff a lot of the stuff that I have done has been nearly as controlled or tested or anything so <laughs> when somebody that's done it like far less than than even I have I feel like in in our 
like claiming to be experts. I feel like that's, you know, that's, that's a little shady in my opinion. Uh, we had, I got, I had my design criticized by someone that didn't even have a Kimovo profile to, to compare. So that was, that's pretty entertaining. Yeah. You know, like that's just, I don't know. For me, you like, <laughs> there's no Kung Fu master that's done Kung Fu twice. Right. There's no, uh, there's no, expert level plumber that's only plumbed twice there's no professional basketball player that this is the third time they've dribbled a basketball like there's just i mean that's just the way i look at it i don't oh yeah I don't know and what else that, to say seems self-explanatory to me but oh yeah one of the other things uh, that i talked about too is is that hey people need to worry about viruses especially with the fact that people are growing lots of different vegetables in their aquaponic systems and then converting you know commercial systems over um, lettuce chlorosis virus absolutely can be latent and transferred that um, i posted a, a, a research paper uh, to the uh, aquaponic cannabis facebook growers group as well as the uvi page all about lettuce chlorosis virus uh, how easily it is to transfer. Um, I'm really going to try and do my best to research um, that article in particular had a lot of really well cited stuff on on looking at the DNA and, and the and how it is that that virus actually attacks that plant and how they made some if you read that whole paper it actually tells you about some of the other viruses that they predict will also jump to cannabis. Um, so I'm trying to um, put together a list of viruses uh, and get it out there on hey like if you're if you are switching from aquaponics over to cannabis you know from a vegetables or, or leafy greens you need to know about this because if you don't you know you could really have you know a deficiency or something else or struggle and not even realize that you know hey there's, there's a big problem here and it's actually viral and not you know nitrogen deficiency or iron deficiency or you know some other thing that people mislabel it as and i think people expect like i've seen at least six different viruses in the last two months at various uh, hemp grows across oklahoma so well i mean when you when you think about just the sheer number of hemp plants that are growing now in in places that use you know they used to grow other things alfalfa corn lettuce um you know all those classic crops, you know, someone somewhere is replacing those crops with hemp, cannabis, and and being able to even just report on those things out in the open instead of, you know, having to hide that you're even growing a plant. Um, you know, it's just it's it's a different world now, and I think that's why you're seeing so many break out into, you know. Uh, areas of cannabis and hemp that they haven't previously been either exposed to or publicly documented you know because there's been obviously plenty of people that have probably experienced stuff growing cannabis over the last how many ever years that it's been illegal that uh that <laughs> you're not not necessarily willing to go post a picture on the internet and say hey what you know, what's going on or even take it to your local you know ag and say, hey, what what's up with uh, with this? And so you have a couple of things that I think now that are kind of like this microcosm of, of you know legalization, whether you import cannabis, and that you have all this new exposure that's coming out, and that they're getting planted in places that they haven't planted before. 
And then on top of that, you have the people that are, are coming out of the woodwork that have experienced different things that don't necessarily have to be concerned about getting thrown in jail for growing a plant anymore. No, some states, obviously, sorry about that. So we'll, we're working our way to you. Um, but uh, I, I do think that, that because of that microcosm, you'll see even more stuff and it's even more important to be aware of it, especially like you were saying, if you know you're transitioning from a system, an aquaponic system, especially a closed loop aquaponic system that's been growing a wide variety of different types of vegetables, you you should definitely know what's in there. And so that, that's a that's a big the uh, big thing to keep an eye on as we move forward because there's not only going to be so much new information but new exposure also that you know nobody's seen before. So it, it'll be interesting. That and um, yeah, and, and and it's just I, I, there's not a lot of documentation being done with the viral stuff, is particularly you know with what's what's transferable, and everyone knows about to, to you know tomato mosaic virus, tobacco tobacco mosaic virus, but people you know those are really the only ones that people talk about you know hemp mosaic or or maybe hemp latent or hot latent virus, but you know there's all these other viruses that we're seeing now. I know. I, we saw a Budweiser or Anheuser Busch field that had a whole bunch of. Um, it was next to a soybean field, and they were getting the soybean leaf curl virus jumping because of the leaf hoppers um, biting the plants, and um, that was pretty gnarly. You know, I'd never seen that. You know, so yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of stuff. But the other big thing is, is that you have people putting these hemp strains in these super sterile soils that have been growing soybean, corn, wheat, and, and just treated with these massive chemical fertilizers. So there's no microbial diversity in there. And again, going back to the same thing like we have with DWC versus versus dual root zone, uh, it's the same thing like in the soil scenario. If you have ultra soil, sterile soil, you have no microbiological diversity, of course you're gonna end up with mold problems. Of course you're gonna end up with all these disease issues. Um, you know, that makes perfect sense. Right, and it's almost, you know, it, there's multiple facets to it too, because look at extraction now, you know, how, how many people were doing extraction 20 years ago? Not that many. So now that we're able to have such a large amount uh, of people doing concentrates in a variety of different ways, we're starting to see all the different things that come out that are not cannabis, like maybe the, the neem oil that you treated with, or maybe the, you know, whatever oil you treated with in flour or whatever pesticide you use, you know, it, it concentrates everything that's there. Any, any re residuals that are left over, um, you know? So I, I think that because we have so much new information, it's, it's gonna be crazy for a little while as we start to discover things that, you know, maybe just because we've always done them is not a good reason to continue to do them. It's like the easiest way to sum it up. Oh, and now I lost Steve. Sweet. No, I'm here. I'm here. Oh. We lost Roger. Oh, we lost Roger. That's weird. It doesn't, it just shows me on my, on my uh, chat list. Normally it shows you too. So yeah, I think all this new information, you know, cause you have, now you have a whole, a whole new, wealth of information coming from all the extractors that you, you know, if you 
talk to them. <laughs> it's pretty easy. You can just look at the stuff that comes out in the extraction and make observations about it. And uh, and people will still argue with you. You know, like we still on a <laughs> average post in the Facebook group that has anything to do with any type of bug, somebody always recommends neem oil. Um, you know, six weeks in flower, sure, spray it with neem oil. Like, I just don't know what else to say about it. You know, like you've done a ton of extraction work and that has been involved in it for a while. And so what, like, what is your, I mean, I already know what it is, but what, what's your perspective on even, even using various oils and even in veg? Yeah, so, so, I mean, if you're gonna make any kind of concentrate from it, you shouldn't be spraying it at any point. Uh, maybe dipping clones if you have a problem, but you know, aside from that, um, you know, you really should not be, uh, you know, at putting any oils on. And the reason why is, so the plant has multiple different types of trichome heads on the plant. And if you have, um, uh, what happens is when you spray it, say we say neem oil two weeks before we flip the plants, right? We have neem oil all over that gets into the stalks, onto the stems, uh, you know, into the leaves and everything else. Well, those little trichome heads will absorb some of those, you know, essential oils, neem oil or whatever else it is that you're spraying on there. And then we go and we, we flip the plant and then it, you know, we, it has nice big branches that still contain that neem oil in it. Uh, now those nodes, you know, some of those lower nodes or maybe nodes further down the plant, that's those still have that neem oil in it from when we sprayed that. Um, and now we go into flower, still has, still there. Um, and then they do the air extract and then they end up concentrating it and then they test and they're like, well, I didn't use it at all in flower. Where's this neem oil coming from? And it, it it's in the, it ends up, you know, showing up in the trike heads, um, you know, later on in, in post-processing. So that's the reason why it's real important to try and avoid using that, you know, unless you absolutely have to. Uh, and most of the time, if you're, if you really come in, you're doing your, your beneficial insect regimens, and then you come in heavy when you do have a problem, you know, and buy an extra container or two of those insects. Um, you know, we, we don't really have too many issues. I'm just maintaining good biosecurity, making sure that you don't, you aren't bringing everyone and their brother through your grow, making sure you're allowing pets and animals into your grow, making sure you have proper filtration, you're, you're sealing up your gaps and you're, you know, anywhere where those pests can come in you shouldn't really, you know, and you're doing your beneficial insects so that you got your, your army waiting for anything that does come in there. You don't, you know, you shouldn't really need to uh, have to go crazy with anything other than microbials for, for fungal prevention. You know? Yeah, I think that anymore, I, I see less and less scenarios in which it's quote unquote absolutely necessary. I don't, I don't know like I, I can't come up with a scenario in which I I would spray neem oil like on anything last a plant that's been like let's say rooted for for two weeks. I mean, by the time a plant gets to you know even like two to three feet high, all you gotta do is take out your scope, take a little peek at it, <laughs> and you will see that there are plant heads right like right there and. So, the the concept to me, it's just not that foreign. And you gotta you gotta talk to extractors if you want like the real information. Like you can just go. You know, most of them have pictures of it. Just 
the scenarios that I run into all the time when I when I talk to them are this, which is that you have an extractor in, in Oregon, you have different types of uh, licensing. So for instance, you can be licensed for just extraction. So you can then go buy product from growers and extract it. And so what, what ends up happening is, is that they, they can buy it from multiple places. And if they end up extracting something that is contaminated with something like neem oil, then they, you know, they're essentially need a way to recoup their investment because all of that stuff that they've purchased and just ran, which is usually a considerable amount, um, you know, like probably like six pounds per run minimum, usually <clears throat> in a small system, um, it is, you know, it can be a big investment for someone. So just if you, if you talk to them and then you, you talk to the, they go back and they talk to the growers, they, they'll say similar things all the time, which is that, oh, we only sprayed in veg. Uh, there, there shouldn't be anything on there. Uh, we didn't have any issues. And, you know, the extractor has to be like, uh, well, it's, you know, it's right here in the pan. You can just look at it. You can smell it if you want to. Um, so I think that that kind of like hard evidence for, for me is just, uh, you know, too, too much to, to get over. And so when, when people start trying to debate it, um, I, I don't necessarily get overly involved because I, I don't have the in-depth knowledge that that you do about all the the science behind it um so i i would be interested in in other people like in chat if anybody else has any experiences or anything that they want to talk about in terms of that because nemo has been widely used and widely recommended um for for years and years and years and and to me this seems like one of those situations in which it's uh has some some measure of success at killing insects and that no matter what, I can't come up with a scenario that I feel like I didn't have just as good of options like enzyme-based sprays or, uh, you know, various types of predators that are specifically designed to go after what I want. I just don't feel like there's enough evidence for me to, that I've talked to, everybody that I've talked to that wants to continue to use neem oil in veg or, or anything even like you know people want to defend using like sulfur um yeah someone's asking in chat about sulfur Let, let's let's uh, go to sulfur so there's like wettable sulfur or soluble sulfur water soluble sulfur and and really the the same thing applies except for it it takes even longer sulfur takes even longer to break down i think even on the package itself it recommends not spraying it i think it's 30 days before flip or something like that um so for me just having that kind of uh i guess risk associated with it when i i can i can treat with stuff like even labs or em5 or different things that are, are just microbes um as opposed to to risking something uh, or smoking something that it is a you know that is a separate chemical. 
Yeah, I think too is just not not being so freaked out and panicked when I find something the way I used to be when I was a you know a younger grower and didn't really know as much and you know you find X Y and Z. I think I think you know bong aphids still kind of scare the shit out of me. There's another another aphid or two that I found in a couple of grows that's kind of you know not impossible to get rid of but definitely challenging. Um, and then. Uh, uh, you know, russets and broads, you know, if you don't have the ability to cook those, those mites off those plants can be really, really rough. Um, mm -hmm. But if you do have the ability to cook them off, you just run your greenhouse at 120 degrees Fahrenheit for one hour after giving your plants a good soak with water and you'll kill all your mites. <laughs> and you do yeah, that. Environmental controls are, are important, like not even just being able to keep I mean, obviously keeping a good environment to start with is good. Making sure that the beneficial bugs that you uh, that you choose to implement are, are good for your uh, for your different ranges, whether it's temperature range or humidity, uh, uh, like a source of habitat, like cer certain bugs like to have um, more shade in, in places that they can get into. So they do better on bigger plants than they, they do on smaller plants. So there are like various things about using uh, beneficials that I feel like you can really dial it in specific to what you want. So I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as you in that uh, I don't freak out as much anymore when I, I, like if I find a, like even just a regular old spider mite, you know, I pull the leaf, I hang a couple lace wing cards and you know, if I feel like it's necessary, I might get some predators, but for the most part, they, you know, they take care of business They're, and I already have enough beneficials. I always have green lace wings, larvae running all the time. They're, they're probably in my opinion and beneficial nematodes are probably in my, my opinion, the two best like bang for your buck in terms of, uh, you know, cost to benefit ratio. And then you have your, your, predators like even like uh, you know, assassin bugs or different ones that have their place and usually that's again trying to uh, find something that's going to work in your environment so you know a lot of times you know those assassin bugs are going to be good uh, in certain areas or, or maybe you're after something a little bit larger too maybe you're you want to do you know maybe you're having a hard time with like leaf hoppers or something like that um, you know so there's there's just a, a number of different uh, beneficials that you can cater to with your environmental controls. And then on top of that, if you have enough environmental control to where you can cook up the, the temperature up, up to 120 degrees and, and keep it that way and then cool it back down in a pretty quick amount of time, um, then it, it can be an extremely effective control for bugs. and not detrimental to your plants at all so again i just feel like between all of the other options i still don't know when i i would get all the way to the point of uh using neem oil or sulfur um mostly just because i like using if you have to wait so long after using sulfur but like you can almost just clone a plant and restart and grow it for 30 days <laughs> And, and be able to reboot without having to worry about any of that. So, Yeah, to, going back to what you were saying, though, I think if I found russets or broads on a mom, uh, 
I would take clean clones, dip them in self-oil X, and then start start the moms all over. I, w I wouldn't even bother because then I know they're clean and I can hit them with Swarovski eye and Andersoni eye. Someone asked, what would you do on an outdoor, a uh, huge outdoor grow for, for russets or broads and I, if you couldn't um, greenhouse them? And I would do, uh, you know, um, a lot of people are using Swarovski eye and Andersoni eye. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is, what's, there's another little, what's the other one? Galio begins with a those, G. Uh, those satchels, I think, are, are really important when you're the trying Swarovski to use. Yeah, Swarovski eye satchels are killer for outdoor because, um, but yeah. it also depends on your temperature. Um, it depends on where you're at. Um, uh, if you're in like Oklahoma or Texas or some other area like that, I would not use Swarovski eye. We actually use Californicus because Californicus, uh, yeah, Swarovski eye definitely will help. But the problem is when you get up above, you know, 105, 110, most of those other mites aren't doing too well anymore. And the Californicus will survive those, maybe not 110, but they'll certainly survive the 90s much more comfortably and breed better, uh, I've found, at the higher temperatures. So you really need to look at what time of year. And that's also, again, why it's nice when you do use your different beneficials, you can kind of dial it in for the season. Um, another great example would be in the very beginning of the season or the very end of the season, you're dealing with cold, you know, switching to brown lace wings instead of green lace wings so that you have something that can still be active in those cool nights um, because those guys will be active down to 38 or 40 degrees Fahrenheit um, when they'll start to hatch and everything else. So, um, you know, again, adapting those, you know, your, your IPM plan around the temperature of your grow and, and everything else for the, for the season. Uh, making sure that your insects are right there um, is, is going to be critical. And then you also have, you know, places like, uh, I know Alberta is about to get hit with a snowstorm this weekend. So, Right. So, you know, again, I just feel like there's like, there's so many different ways to target as long as you identify what you're going after. And I feel like that's what most people maybe don't want to do. Like when, when people just want to be like, I just want to spray whatever's there and kill it. They don't want to take the extra, like, maybe 15 minutes to get out of the scope, take a peek at it, take a picture of it, Google up what the fuck it is, post it to a group. Like, there are, there's no excuse to not identify what you're dealing with and then finding out what eats it. I mean, if you really want to break it down to, like, simple, stupid terms, <laughs> you know, IPM for dummies, if you will. Like that's that's really the essence of, of, of most of it and, and all the way down to the microbe level. Like, uh, you know, what what types of microbes can you breed to be able to help with IPM, the layers of security like we talked about before. Um, and that when, when a new bug shows up, you already want to have something there in between. Like you, you, you want to have something there that's going to eat it. You know, your your general predators to be running around. Uh, you know, like your H miles is a great one um, that will, will, will often uh, pretty easily reproduce uh, in your grow or in last for extended periods of time. Um, especially if you've got, you know, a, like an aquaponics system, you can almost always find a little patch of springtails most of the time. And uh, they'll, they'll happily munch on those. So I feel like they can, they're a great way of, of sustaining. So if you always have a baseline of stuff and then you, 
you identify any type of bug that you have coming in, which means you've got to be scoping your grow. We talk about this all the time. Like, just because you can walk a circle around your plants and not necessarily see a bug infestation from three feet away doesn't really mean that you're you're keeping an eye on your plants. And by the time that you spot uh, something from, from that distance or that big of a look, um, you know you're you're probably too too far along in the process to be really effective at it. As if you you know, just pull some sample leaves. And the more you pull sample leaves and the more you look at stuff, the more you'll identify places on the plant that are at risk for uh, having bug infestations. You know, if you've got some thick areas around the stalks or and when plants grow together and they, they have areas that have higher densities because there's two plants growing in the same area, those are all gonna be, um, have different little pockets of humidity and temperature uh, in, in places for insects to hide. So the more you do it, the more you'll identify them, the more you identify them, the more effective you are at finding, knowing what eats them. And I just, for me personally, I don't, it just seems like a much more logical route to go um, than messing with any of that other stuff, personally. Yep. We had a, a, another person ask, what about the hemp um, drawing in what's in the soil? You know, uh, that's another great, th great point. If you have an area that's been treated with heavy metals or, you know, was near a rail line or um, had a, a big flood, you know, come through, you don't know what it was deposited. And that hemp absolutely will bioaccumulate that. Now, whether or not that would, if you're running it to isolate, and most people doing hemp are running it to isolate, which if you're running into isolate, it's in all likelihood going to be low on heavy metals. But if you're selling smokable flour, absolutely, you need to be concerned about that and get a heavy metal tissue test if, if possible and get a heavy metal test for your land. Yeah, I highly true. recommend sending off your, your heavy metal test off to Canada. Um, the Canadian heavy metal testing they do is much, much, much more rigorous than the United States and will give you a much, much better... Um, idea now you can get it done in the united states as well but uh we found that you know there's a lab up there we, we like to work with that seems to do a much better job and a much wider range um, than most of the other uh other stuff yeah it's i mean obviously like you said it's definitely an accumulator so um you know test your soil and know what's there to accumulate you can't accumulate it if it's not there in your soil so that's the you know, or, or your aquaponic system, either one, you know, both tested. And then like you said, tissue testing uh, on any, like, especially if you're commercial, I mean, I don't know, obviously, I'm not gonna probably tissue test my, my 12 plants, um, but I'm definitely still gonna do, do water samples and, and do testing, um, you know, even on, on established systems, I feel like it's a good idea to do it on a, on a fairly regular basis, even home-based systems. Oh yeah, and, and you know, if you're just trying to get a basic, hey, what's in my soil, a lot of times you can go to your local university or state college and, and even community college and that has an ag extension and, and it's generally anywhere between 25 and $60 to get a soil analysis, depending on what it is you want. And that's on average, sometimes it's more, um, but a lot of times they're happy to do it just to get some local soil data. You know, they're, yeah, they're all... say, your local ag department, a lot of times will give you like one free water test 
um, just to, to get your profile. So I, I did that here in, in Jackson County. So if you reach out to the local ag department, at least, but I mean, that was like six years ago, five years here ago. In, here in Carolina, it's $25 for a special test that gives you the metal analysis and, and all the minerals and then $6 for dirt. And you, yeah. you, you do your six or 10 or 12 holes or whatever it is and fill up a big bag of dirt and they test it off. Yeah. And Steve hit it on the head. I mean, if you're not commercial or you just want to get started to get a good idea of what you're doing, how you're going to have to amend your soil, you make sure that you get your tests up front and you get you. Most places have a county agent. We have a county agent here. We've got our department of agriculture and then we have a Clemson extension university and uh, you know, with different, offices around the state and each one of them are assigned an agent that'll actually come out to your farm if you ask them to they'll come out and assist you and make sure you do things right or or you know help you out and give you an idea you know here or there it's very useful to use your local government agencies because they're there to help you for sure yeah sorry yep <laughs> yeah um, I, I, I do think that you know like like Steve was saying, and like they they were doing for us, is that um, <coughs> uh, the the first time that you do your test, a lot of times they'll waive it because they want the data um, to be able to study. And so most of them, I'm not like don't bust my balls if they don't do it for you, <laughs> but uh, so it might depend on if you're in a well or or what. But ours was a well test that was that was essentially what we were doing so um but if you reach out to them even if you can't get it for free it's going to be pretty cheap like roger was saying 25 bucks for for pretty thorough testing is is pretty decent and it's going to be local and uh they're they're there because of your tax dollars assuming you pay taxes so you might as well take advantage of them. absolutely um so uh what are some of the other beneficial insects that you've been using a lot? Maybe we should, we could roll into that discussion. So are you talking to me or Roger? But, uh, whoever wants to answer the question, but it was mainly aimed at, at what yeah, you're talk doing. to you, buddy. I, I, I'm, I've been down, I'm starting back again. So I don't have any beneficial except the ones that come natural. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I already talked about uh, green lacewing or, or like Steve was saying, the brown lacewing, if it's gonna be colder. Um, I do like uh, assassin bugs, pirate bugs. Um, I try to release those um, outside because uh, they are um, native here to the area. So I'm trying to get them established. And that was, I had pretty successful in my old house. Um, I always like praying mantis, <laughs> mostly for the entertainment value. I mean, they'll eat a lot of stuff. Uh, for sure. But then you have your various predator mites like the, well, and I guess just on the praying mantis note, it's a little bit tough, like using them as any sort of like treatment, because the, um, you know, it takes like six weeks for an egg to hatch. And sometimes you can get ones that are about to hatch and maybe the, you know, they'll take like two or three or four, uh, but you're never really sure whether it's going to be two or three or four. And a lot of times, you know, if you're, so there definitely would be a general predator that I keep around, um, mostly for, like I said, entertainment value, but they're very effective against flying insects. So if you're trying to like control white flies um, or even larger insects like grasshoppers, leafhoppers, 
uh, they're kind of, they'll, they'll eat a lot of different things and especially at different sizes that we talked about um, before. I don't really use ladybugs uh, mostly because um, a lot of times they either fly away or they fly up into lights. So whether you're indoors or outdoors, uh, you know, unless you've got a really good environment for them and you release them at the right time of year to, and they have enough to eat to, to stick around, which usually means you, you, maybe you've got some aphids or something there that you, you want to wipe out. So um, I, don't, I don't use them that much though. I really find that uh, the lace wings are similar in cost and more effective. Um, they're not going to fly up into, into your lights. They're not going to just take off in a day. Um, you can put out cards uh, with lacewing eggs on them that will just hatch over time. And if you want to, like, I'll hang up a whole bunch of them, you know, like four for a good size plant. And then if I have issues, I'll add more to that. I'll like surround a little infestate, like a infestation with uh, lacewing cards and they'll hatch around that whole area. And uh, they cover a lot of ground. Um, beneficial nematodes, I'm always using those um, for most of your, you know, like your root zones, root areas to keep out anything like root aphids or um, <clears throat> uh, to help cut down on, on insects that like fall off uh, the plant at different larva stages and then reproduce in the soil and then climb back up the plant like uh, thrips. Uh, so H miles are a great thing to have crawling around there all the time. Uh, as well, and they're gonna, you know, take over your surface area. Um, so those are like my go-to ones right there. That's kind of the, I would say the the general menu. But then you've got like your Californicus, your Swarskis, your Andersonii. Um, I'm really a big fan of the the satchels and the cards that release uh, predators over time because it allows you to have, I feel like, better control of um, your, your bug population. So if I, if I wanna have a lot of them hatching at one time, I know I can put out a lot of cards and, and a lot of them will go out and then I'll actually come out and move them around. Because the, if they don't have anything else to eat, they will start eating each other or the eggs, the little ones when they hatch. So when I come out on a, on like a daily basis, I'll just kind of knock a bunch of them off the cards that have just hatched off and move the cards to another area. So they're really easy to relocate um, and it's not like your, your predators when you just like get a jar of predators and you just kind of got to release them around. I've tried different things like the, um, like little muffin cups. I kind of nestle them near the stock and just put some in there and let them crawl out over time. But I never found them to be as effective as the satchels or the eggs that hatch. And so just a couple notes on the satchels is that um, they're already pre-designed with the holes that they should have in them. You don't want to open them. You don't want to poke more holes in them. You don't want to make the existing holes bigger. Uh, they're designed specifically to, to be a little breeding pouch for them to be able to continue to hatch for up to six weeks. Um, so uh, just be aware of that. If you want to increase your population faster, get more satchels because they're going to reproduce on kind of the same rate and release at different times. But if you have multiple satchels releasing multiple bugs, then that's how you can up your population faster. And why I like satchels better than just say like releasing, you know, 5,000 live adults at once. 
um, I don't feel like you get the same effect. Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of the lacings as well. Um, you know, lacings, H miles, or what are they all? Stradio Lalap Schematist now, I think, isn't it? Um, is the new name for it, for the Latin name. They've changed it. Um, <laughs> I still call it H miles because I can fucking pronounce it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I always thought it was funny. as like, was it named after some guy named something Miles? And then, like, what kind of fucked up thing did he do to like make it so not only did they change the 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 la the, the species name, they changed the genus too, just to like get away from that. So he must have done something. You know, I yeah. don't know. I, I just I thought that was kind of funny. I made I, I said that to an entomologist, and they're like, "No, it's nothing like that. Just reclassification." And I'm just like, "Yeah, I know. Just still funny though." You're like, "Yeah, but that's so much less entertaining." Right, like, <laughs> but um, so we had a. Uh, I'm also a big fan of uh, rove beetles. Rove beetles are super kick-ass because they can fly. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you mentioned um, pirate bugs, uh, Oreos. Oreos are also great because they can fly, but they will bite you, and it sucks. They, yeah. they, they do have a bit of a bite to them. That's why I like to release them outside, and I feel like that's another thing that that even indoor growers, I feel like overlook a lot is that you can release bugs around the outside of your indoor and, and, and help that environment, especially if you can find ones that are natural to your environment and plant some plants that they might like and be able to boost up your, your really your, your first layer, just your general area, um, even around your outdoor uh, or around your indoor, excuse me. Um, can, can really be beneficial. Even like I transplant spiders in, into like in the surrounding areas uh, just because they'll web up a lot of the, you know, still a lot of the holes even like inside the walls and stuff. And it's just another, like we talked about another layer of security. Absolutely. And then uh, nematodes, always gotta have your nematodes as well if you're doing cannabis and aquaponics. Otherwise, you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, I agree. New, beneficial nematodes. And so, actually, uh, Organic Pots asked what predator bugs are the easiest to keep around and feed when their bug food source is gone. Uh, for which one? I think any predator bugs, which ones are easiest to keep around? Which ones are, you know, so Oreos, I would say H. Miles, Aureus. And rove beetles, and, and nematodes. If you're going to count nematodes, because they'll they'll colonize most most things, especially aquaponic systems. Uh, you know, there there's so much um, material for them to be able to feed off of generally. So, for the most part, I would say, like Steve was saying. Um, you know, even even pirate bugs, I guess you could probably make a case for if you had a decent sized girl. But other than that, I would agree with Steve. I don't, most of the predators, you're not going to, you know, really just keeping the right temperature around and keeping satchels in there is going to, but even those are going to, are going to die completely off eventually. Um, so I would say probably H miles. I'm going to go with that as the, the most 
um, are the easiest to uh, colonize in your girl. If you don't yeah, especially because they, they love to feed on those little um, springtails. You know, the springtails can be a great food to keep those guys in your growth. Same thing with rove, rove beetles, you know, they'll feed on those guys and, and keep them around. And, you know, and that's something else too, if you don't have pollen or some kind of other more benign food source that you don't really have the way to keep your beneficials around. And this is where companion planting really can become key, you know, planting banker plants like um, purple flash peppers or some, you know, other pepper or ornamental peppers that just produce a ton of pollen constantly. Um, there was a recent study on how hemp, um, you know, male hemp plants is actually a really good late season source of pollen for um, uh, honeybees. And that, that actually can be a great, you know, in certain parts of the country, one of the only sources of pollen for honeybees at certain times of year. So just because of the amount of monocropping that we're doing, you know, there literally is, is no other uh, pollen that these guys or these bees can actually get to. So. Um, you know, it's really interesting to see how, how, uh, how this all, uh, you know, circles back, but, um, that, those would kind of be like my, my go-tos and ones that really help a lot. And then after that, it's just a matter of, of, Hey, what, what's, what are you dealing with in your local area? And a lot of stuff, especially like in the springtime, you should be preparing for aphids. You know, you should have your aphidillus and your lace wings and, you know, you can even use ladybugs as a spot hit, but ladybugs are are pretty horribly harvested. Um, they basically shot back them off of plants in the high altitude uh, in the Sierra Nevadas and, and California. So it's not really sustainable and something that you want to support with your dollars. So uh, that's why, you know, generally we try to discourage people from using ladybugs is because they're not really ethically harvested and um, it, it really can be a problem. So, um, you know, that's again, uh, one more reason why we like lace wings, but frankly, lace wings just work better, you know? Yeah, that's what it is for me. Like hands down, I've, I've used plenty of ladybugs um, and, and not that they're not effective, like especially against aphids, I would say it's probably like what they would be the most effective against, um, but they don't, they're just not great at sticking to an area and eradicating a problem. Uh, once the, the food population gets low, they just bail. And then you're right back in the same situation. They also don't eat eggs and they don't eat really small plants. So they're not going to hurt really small bugs. Um, so like juvenile spider mites are, are just going to survive and hatch eggs that will continue to hatch. So they just start farming um, insects instead of eradicating them or at least just demolishing their population and then moving on to find a larger source of food before it's completely eradicated. So, um, and it's also important to note that they, like I mentioned earlier, they love to fly up into lights. When you have insects that fly, they almost always fly up into a light and melt one of their fucking wings or whatever, and then fall down and gets stuck on your plant or um, stuck up in your lights, like what happened to uh, fish. Was that fish? Ganja? Uh, fish, fish, ganja guy literally had so many ladybugs up in one of his, I believe it was a um what do they call black dog light um, yeah, that black it was smoldering like literally physically smoldering and he had to unplug the light you know so you know and that's that's and that can happen with it, it's not it's not because necessarily of that light but that can happen with any light you know they, they get right. packed in there and and you get enough of their corpses and you'll get a fire you know 
Right. And plus you're, you're just burning money at that point. Like they're just flying up in the light and dying. They're not eating shit. Like you're just wasting your money, which is also depressing. Um, and, and you still have bugs, like bugs you don't want on your plants. So I would say uh, that the, another huge advantage to lace wings is that they, they can't fly. And if you, you haven't seen them before, and you know, they basically look like, I don't know, little alligators with a scorpion tail and like a weird pincher on the front. They're, they're really kind of freaky looking. Um, and they crawl really fast and the, their larva actually gets pretty good size before, uh, before it, it, they either change stage or die, depending on your environment. Um, they're not going to colonize. So you're going to, it's kind of, you're always going to be buying them and releasing them. Um, but they're, they're a great, uh, just overall predator that are, are going to eat everything from eggs all the way up to like aphid sized bugs. Um, that they're just, they're just really effective, relatively cheap. They all, I would say similar cost, uh, to, to ladybugs, except for you don't have to buy as many of them because they're more effective. So, and, and easier to, to move around to control, like I talked about earlier, especially with the cards. So, they don't fly up in the lights and they don't fly away. So, they spend a lot more time in your throat eating the bugs you want them to eat. Yep. We also have Roger from True Aquaponics. How's it going? Hey, what's up, Roger? Roger, too. There we go. Let me, let me get him unmuted here. Hold on. <laughs> he unmuted himself, and then you muted him. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Hi, guys. How y'all doing? It's uh, great to be able to see everybody and talk to everybody again. It's been a while. Um, it's going great, actually. Oh, good. Glad to hear. What have you been up to? Working way too much. Way, way too much. <laughs> What uh, what kind of uh, pest issues are you seeing with the people that you're uh, in in talking with this time of year? Down here in, in our neck of the woods, so to say, uh, right now, mealybugs are are a big issue, along with spider mites. Uh, aphids are, as always, a big issue, um, but the the other two are coming on really strong right now, and it's it's, I think it's the cooling down along with the lack of minerals um so plant health is a real issue for people so you know how nature works if nature sees a sick plant and tries to get rid of it to allow uh the the unsick or the, the healthier plants to grow and, th and thrive absolutely how how is your garden doing That, that's a weird question for you to ask me. My garden is doing excellent. Um, I, I don't get as much time as I'd like to spend out there, but uh, it's it's we we are producing so much now uh, for the size that we're, we're giving most of what we get away, um, just because we can't eat it all. It's, it's just unreal how much we get out of such a small little garden, uh, and I, I think a lot of that is not just experience of, of how to do it and and what have you, but also the nutrients we're putting in there to to really make it thrive. Awesome. So what are, what are uh, what's kind of like the, the stuff that really did great this year in your garden? Oh, man, like like every year, tomatoes, we, we have 
monster tomato plants. Um, eggplant did really well this year. Uh, cucumbers did really well this year. Any kind of squash you can think of has done really well and is still doing well. Um, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Every year is the same as it was the year before, except a little better as we learn more about what we're doing. Everything we stick in there produces so well. Uh, aquaponics is just amazing. Awesome. And what kind of fish are you running? As always, except for the very early days, uh, we're, we're running uh, channel cat. Um, in, in our one system out here, Beside this shop, we've uh, we've got about 400 gallons and three channel cat, and they're big enough now that they produce enough ammonia to create enough nitrate uh, by the time the bacteria get done that we're we're running the system with ease, and that's all free fish. Uh, now originally, and, and uh, let's just say Overstock.com, that was us Overstockfish.com. Uh, we, we were putting in a hundred little channel cat that were four or five inches long and just flooding our system with nitrate, uh, giving us multiple issues as far as nutrient lockout. Um, and then with our high pH we have down here in Texas, of course, that was an issue as well. But, uh, yeah, we're down to three fish just to run the system. And then we've got another system about 300 yards away that uh, we keep quite a few more fish in. It's much larger. Um, and we, we constantly harvest fish out of that system, uh, hoping to lower the nitrate down to where it's, it's in a better range as well. But the plants up there are doing much better than down here where we're at because of the sunlight, uh, that's, that's available. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, and I'm not sure if I said so or not, but it's also channel cat up there, but it's uh, wonderful, good fish to eat. We love it. Um, the meat is really, really sweet, which is unusual. Uh, if you catch wild caught channel cat in our area, it's not sweet like that. So it's, it's a, it's a very nice treat. Very cool. Very cool. And, um, uh, what else is new with you? Anything else you got cooking? We are still working with this particular person uh, to put together a subscription service for uh, folks that want to actually test their, their water and and their plants um, and then be told uh, what they should add and what amounts they should add. Actually, it's not that. It's it's more of they they pay a price, they send in their samples, and then they receive a package of what they need. So they don't have to think about it. They just put it in every time the package arrives. And then every few weeks they send in another sample and that, that package is altered. Uh, that way their plants are getting exactly what they need for what they're growing. Um, of course, there's a questionnaire that goes along with that uh, as far as, you know, ask what they're growing, what their pH is and certain things to, to make sure we're giving them a, a good reading for what their plants need. And we're, we're looking forward to that service kicking off Been working on it for some time. Absolutely, yeah, it'll be really exciting and, uh, and a really cool service for people to help get rid of a lot of the hardest part of um, of growing, you know? That's, uh, and I see a lot of people's farms fail because of that and uh, really help a lot of the commercial guys as well. So really looking forward to that. Yeah, and we, yeah, like you're saying, the, the 
failing farms, it, it's a terrible thing to see to where people can spend just a few dollars uh, a day and make a farm viable versus a farm that totally fails. Um, and when I say a few dollars a day, it depends on the size of the farm, obviously, but um, it's 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 awful to see somebody that's invested a lot of time and money and, and their passion and their love into something and then have it fail simply because uh, they either don't understand what's going on or they don't have the ability to figure out what's going on. Uh, well, I guess one and the same, but uh, it, it's it's really sad to see, and we we, we just can't wait to help people uh, to do better. Yeah, I think it's interesting <clears throat> when you, you know, you get a lot of different people that end up defining, I guess, what, what aquaponics is, or I guess, more importantly, what it's not, right? A lot of, a lot of people have this opinion that like, if you supplement, then you're, you're not really doing aquaponics because you're not just feeding the fish. Um, and so for me personally, I just say, go, okay, so, I mean, if you don't want to call it that, then don't call it that, you know, like I don't, you know, either way, it's still produce or don't produce. Um, at, at level and, and so for me personally the way i look at it is that you break down aquaponics and that for me it just simply has to be a closed loop system um in which that you are feeding aquatic uh life forms whether it be shrimp or uh worms or <clears throat> uh, crayfish or catfish or koi or whatever it is uh, that's living in your water um, and essentially using the microbes to create the nutrients out of the waste products from that, right? It's not just directly the, the fish shit is just absorbed by roots. Like it's multiple stages of it. So yeah, I was, I, no. sorry, go I was, ahead. I was speaking to an aquaponics farm recently and they have a large aquaculture facility and they're trying to adapt it to put a cannabis operation and I was like so how do you plan on mineralizing your fish waste and they're like well we we dehydrate it and whatnot and it was and 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 it was just like well that's that's really cool and it's definitely monetizable but we, we need some of that to make nutrients so so we're gonna have to take at least some of that and, and brew it and just trying to get that concept over and, and explain that sometimes can be a little bit hard because people it's kind of something that's not traditionally taught in aquaponics or if it is they say oh well it's happening in the mbbrs or whatever you know crazy advice that they're giving um and it's and it and you really do have to take that waste and, and brew it offline or it doesn't necessarily offline but in a way that's that's not directly in line you know to, to maximize the microbes at different you know lengths of time with different microbial inputs or even adding some compost tea inputs you know you can add knf inputs as well um to, to really maximize the um, um the diversity of um of the uh the the nutrients that are available from that fish waste i mean we've talked numerous times and had him on the show twice uh, uh colin bell's mammoth p you know, and, and, and the, all the awesome work that they've been doing. But that, you know, has a, a huge increase in, in the bioavailable phosphorus from fish waste when you, when you use that in a brewer. 
I mean, it, it, it's night and day difference with the bioavailable phosphorus, you know, and that's something that anyone can add to their aquaponics system. It's available in pretty much every decent hydro store in the country. Um, you know, and there's a lot of little stuff like this and, you know, people aren't taught to use those soil microbial inoculants, um, you know, um, uh, recharge and um, back blast and some of these other stuff like that. People aren't taught to use those as part of their cycling system and then to add them, you know, quarterly or, or, or twice a year um, to maintain microbial biodiversity and make sure that you have these microbes that, because if you don't have them, you will get molds and stuff like that. You will have problems. And, but if you do have them present, you know, th those are actively eating the same way that we release ladybugs to eat aphids. Those are eating pythium. And, 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 you know, if you're doing labs in the sake of labs, salmonella and E. coli, you know, and, and other things like that. That's why I really do think that the future of, of proper food safety in aquaponics is going to be probiotic regimens where we're releasing, you know, set either government approved microbial strains or, or you know, generally recognized microbial strains um, into the, the systems themselves just to maintain biosecurity. Uh, same thing with aquaculture, because it makes sense. It's, it's ludicrously cheap and it's a hell of a lot cheaper than insurance and it's a lot cheaper than lawsuits and it's cheaper than liability. You know, and what it comes down to is, is it cheaper to do that or than it is to that? And, and really at the end of the day, that's what that's what's gonna rule. It's not even about, um, you know, whatever else is going on in, 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 and, and people's morals. But we all, we all, I think universally agree that, that we should do things morally correct and use probiotics to move away from chemicals. But at the end of the day, the dollar is what rules everything. And, and by making it more financially feasible because of the low cost, you know, that really is going to help, you know, get more compliance and to get more people to think this way because it is a cheaper option. Yeah, and I just think that there, once once we get to that, I do think we're going to get to that point and just based on its success rate, right? Like, I feel like that's, that eventually the trend is going to move in that way. And eventually, you know, I mean, it's not like you can't brew and sell labs, you know, like look at, uh, look at Alan with Kurogashi. He's essentially making his own microbial inoculants and, and selling them even in bars of soap. Um, so it's not like there aren't similar economic opportunities with microbes just because they're ridiculously cheap. There's, uh, there's all kinds of ridiculously cheap things that get marked up 300%. And like, like here, here's a great example. You can go to Lowe's or Walmart right now and you can buy a half a cubic foot of lava rock for like six or seven bucks. Or you can have an entire yard of lava rock delivered from a landscaping company. Same, same shit, just not in a bag for like 50 to 80 bucks, depending on where you live. So it's not like there aren't uh, super cheap things that are already getting marked up into products and, and being sold. And I think eventually microbial products like uh, mammoth feet, like even though it's a targeted and very specific, you know, phosphorus solubilizing microbe that they have their, uh, you know, a, a definite um, track record for increasing yields. So something that's, that's definitely profitable um, it is still just a method of breeding microbes and you'll have just as many specialized um, 
economic opportunities in, in that than you have with antibiotic soaps now and all the different ways and smells and things that we put into them. So me personally, I just think that eventually uh, that's that, that's where we're going to go. And it's a problem that will solve itself once we once we change the mindset of uh, of killing everything to um, breeding the things that we want and, and not creating microbial vacuums or spurring mutations um, that make them more and more resistant. So. Well, not only that, so I was actually reading on the plane. So like how many people here knew that Botrytis and Fusarium are endophytes and are only pathogenic when they're overpopulated within the plant tissue. I didn't know in that. The, in the podcast, what was that guy's name? It's super awesome. Um, uh, we've had a lot of guests that are super <laughs> awesome. You've got to be more specific. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, you, you guys were talking about endophytes. That's the first time I remember hearing it, the term. Uh, you guys were talking about it. I'll look it up. But, uh, but you know, and that's, and that's, again, exactly why you're seeing fusarium and outbreaks and hemp so bad this year, because it's all in these, these corn fields and these soybean fields that are completely dead. Yeah, xenthanol. Yeah, I guess it was last episode. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. See, I'm not that high. Fuck you. I've been, I've been so damn busy working on this new project that I'm not allowed to talk about until we get our press release out. We, I talked a little bit about it out at the conference, but I'm, I'm going to withhold on here until the press release goes out um, because we were hoping to get it out before that, but that's all right. The, the only reason why I didn't get out already is because of good reasons. So I, I can't complain, but, um, but yeah, so I've just been buried up to my eyeballs. So I do apologize on that. I lost my train of thought on that. Oh, about the end of fight. So, you know, again, this just goes to show, you know, we have these burnt fields that have, you know, next to no microbial biodiversity in the root zone. And again, just like we talked about it being inoculations and like vaccines, you know, that the microbial exposure works the same as vaccines do in children. If you're not exposed to anything, you're never going to get an immune system. And what is the plant's immune system? It produces terpenes to protect itself from fungal issues, UV, uh, insects, all that stuff. You know, and that so we're trying to stimulate that. So why would you put that in an intentionally sterile environment with just water or just soil when you can do both? Regardless, even if you're doing organic hydroponics, you know, I, I totally think that um, we had da uh, was it David Epstein on the show the one time. I totally think that he could absolutely absolutely do organic hydro and get really similar terpene results to what we're doing with dual root zone planting. You know, for the same reasons. Yeah, for sure. I think that you could do. I think you could do just worm waste if you really dialed it in and, and like fed your, like set up worm bins to feed them spe like specific things. Um, well, I'm, and, I'm, I'm real curious why no one set up a commercial scale worm, worm bins and then taken that and made a fungal feed, a soil fungal feed out of it. Cause Dr. Elaine Ingham talks a lot about how, um, you know, soil time, uh, you know, one of the best fungal feeds. Uh, for those of you, actually, I asked her this question. I've asked a lot of other soil people this question. What is it that you feed uh, fungi in the soil? You know, so if I'm trying to, you know, everyone knows about like 
add sugar to feed the bacteria, right? You know, add right. brown sugar. Everyone knows that, right? We add carbon. The fungi. There's two things you can feed fungi to make them grow. Uh, and they're the first, so first off you have the juice from, from worm bins because it's been thoroughly stripped down by those microbes. Mm-hmm. So it's just basic more or less with the fungi and because it's so hot, there's almost no fungi in it because there is some fungi, but very little fungi because you're, you're just putting in freshly rotting material and, and there's so much microbes in terms of bacteria and archaea that it just outcompetes them temporarily. Um, so that's a great one. And then the other one is lactic acid. So making your labs and then straining out, you know, every last piece of, of chunkiness to it and just using a diluted dilution of that also can um, can feed your fungi as well. So if you're just trying to feed that fungal layer, those are the two things that you can use, um, you know, to, to feed that. Plus, it's just fucking amazing on solids. Like, dosing oh. labs to your system, like, I can't, like... I can't explain it to you. Like, you, your fish tanks will never be so clean and so clear. Like, your water will be oh, yeah. crystal clear. Like, just take yeah. some Bokashi brand and feed it to your fish like one to two times a week. And I guarantee you, your water will just look amazing. And it'll cut down on your solids. I actually, on my very small scale, so we're talking like 200 gallon. Uh, system, you guys can check them out on YouTube. But I took all all my filters out, and I just recently, you can look back over the podcast and listen to me bitch about moving. <laughs> I just broke all of them down, which means that I took, I literally took everything out of them. And I swear to God, I, I, I there's like, I was expecting to be like, caked in the bottom because we're talking like two to three years since I removed all the filters off of my, again, very small scale, very low density system. Like don't start talking to me about like 3000, you know, gallon high density systems. Obviously you're not gonna be able to remove all of your filtration. I'm not suggesting that. But on small scale, low density, dosing labs can be amazing for cleaning up solids in your media beds. When I took all that stuff out, and dug all that stuff out the lava rock off the bottom. I was expecting to just be like caked in solids, and it it wasn't. I found a shitload of worms, and I found um, like maybe ten to twenty percent of of the solids that I was expecting to see. Like just a very normal amount after running way longer than I ever was able to run before I started dosing labs without thoroughly cleaning out my media bins. Um, so like twice a year minimum. I would say, um, like especially the Alador system that, that had more fish in them and got more food and created more solids. Um, but yeah, so that, that's my, my pitch on dosing labs is that it, it also is just amazing at breaking down uh, fish solids and, and promotes rapid, rapid growth. That's my pitch. Oh yeah, and and we've talked about that many different times. What kind of filter did you have on there? So I had a uh, flow filter, I guess you would call it, where it, you know uh, essentially was just pumping into a, a, like a settling tank with a swirl came out the other side. It was made out of a fifty-five gallon drum. There's a video of it. Um, 
I think we can see it in my third row. Anyway, it's sitting outside my shop right now because I, I took it off. Um, so other, my only filtration now is media beds. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, our soil filter we took out also. Uh, we're, our only filtration is the media beds. Uh, again, we're only we only have three fish, so we don't need the swirl filter anymore uh, because of that. But uh, the labs to help break down solids, we're we're seeing after this many years, it's been what was it 2012 when we got into it. Um, we're running the same media beds that have never been changed out or cleaned using lava rock since then. So I know there's got to be something building up in there after all these years. Um, and, and you can see it when you dig down, you can see the uh, where worms have eaten the organic matter and left their droppings. Uh, it's pretty thick, but water seems to still flow through it really well. We have no anaerobic areas that we know of. Um, but if there's something that could help break that down further, Man, we're all about it because that, that just helps to feed the plants even more. So, so one of the other great ways, aside from lactobacillic acid bacteria, and uh, anyone that's used Ponzyme or any of the Zyme products, those are also um, similar to labs in that they love to chew through like heavy biological material, such as fish waste, and break those down. But one of the other good ones that you can also add is black worms. You can go to <clears throat> any pet shop around the world uh, or most good tropical aquarium stores in around the world and get black worms. They're a little tiny freshwater worm that's used to feed freshwater fish, but they love to feed on the bacteria that live in anaerobic zones and they'll tunnel through that area and provide oxygenated water. Uh, and they're much, much smaller than red wigglers. They're, they're, I don't know, maybe two to three times the length of a grain of rice. Um, you know, maybe long ones might be double that um, for the real giant ones, but they're really a really good, um, you know, solution for that kind of problem. And, and, you know, you add them once and they breed and kind of keep their population in line with what you need. So it's one of those kind of set it and forget it kind of solutions that works very well. And again, where, where people kind of overthink that sometimes and really try to get in there and overly clean them out, you know, they're just crashing their biological yeah, and I, and I think that also you can really incorporate, I, I love the idea of black worms. And, you know, I, I've heard you say that like 18 times and I always forget to look when I go to the pet store, which to be fair, isn't very often, but I, I do want to get some. But I do think that another thing that you can do is when you're breeding your microbes um, and using them in your own ferments or plant extracts, then you can you can be dosing labs and nutrients at the same time. So making your own nutrients to be able to supplement with, um, you know, in addition to like your, your worm juice, which is like, I would say 80% of my supplements come from, from red wigglers in some, some fashion um, in terms of what, what I actually use to grow. So other than like some uh, sprouted seed, uh, teas, which are, you know, obviously we're, we're doing for enzymes, <coughs> uh, is another great thing that you can add to your beds. That not as much nutrient content, but provides a, a big boost of, of enzymes, or in some cases you can do like 
uh, fermented plant extract. So I'll do like uh, blackberry tips. Um, so like just the little green uh, sprouts of blackberries will contain uh, like rooting hormones and enzymes. Um, uh, also willow uh, is another really popular one that, that you can do. And so when you're when you're doing these plant extracts with with the labs and dosing those at the same time, you know you can just start uh, like breeding a population to seek out those anaerobic zones because the the great part about labs is that they're is it facultative? Am I saying that right, Steve? Uh, facultative, I think. Something like that. Basically, it means that it can survive in anaerobic zones or uh, aerobic zones. In this case, it prefers to breed in anaerobic zones, which makes it really ideal for seeking out in that it can easily survive in aerated uh, <clears throat> water and still be able to seek out just by its own desire anaerobic zones and then reproduce in them allows it, in my opinion, to be extremely effective at, at keeping uh, your your water flowing, your solids broken down, your root zones healthy. Um, you know, I don't I don't even say knock on wood when I talk about like uh, you know, pyrithium or like any of those like uh, root issues. Um, I just haven't had them at all zero yeah same here labs yeah i've never i've never i've seen pythium in nft systems that were cooking and, and too hot and i've seen pythium in people's systems that had entirely too much fish waste that were like grossly overfeeding their beds but that that's the only time i've seen pythium in aquaponics yeah if you check out like uh some of my garage grows man in the summertime um you know i really pushed it in, into the summertime even uh, you know, for the, the space that I had, it wasn't really set up all that well, but um, uh, the, the new flower rooms gonna be amazing for that. But uh, I, I was running some pretty high temperatures in there and, um, you know, almost expected to have some, some kind of root issue because of it, but I, I had none, it turned out amazing. I was surprised. We had a, Another question in chat goes, what about diatomaceous earth on topsoil to deter topsoil critters? Um, diatomaceous earth doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. Um, it, it can injure and kill aquatic microbes. If it gets into the water, it can injure your fish through their gills. Uh, so you should not, especially don't use it in aquaponics, but it, it's, it's all but useless. Um, it also can contain asbestos and a bunch of other nasty shit that you just don't want bioaccumulating in your cannabis. Well, that's um, not food grade doesn't do that now. They got two different yeah, grades. Food grade though doesn't account for all the metals and stuff when you're bioaccumulating in soil. Yeah, but 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 it's and you don't want it in a, a living environment anyway because the the way it reacts or the 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 uh, way they claim that it is a will do, do away with pests. And I've seen different results, but we do respect. Uh, the bug lady on this uh but the thing is is they it's all about scratching a soft skeleton exoskeleton and they dehydrate and die and and it, it but it'll kill your beneficial bugs or worms too so yeah, i just feel like that it's yeah, just don't use it for aquaponics 
Yeah, especially for aquaponics. I feel like it's the only measure of success is because it, it becomes a physical barrier. And really, I feel like you could do the same thing with sand. It's a lot cheaper. You could cover the, the tops with your sand and with, uh, with just that. And I think you would have exactly the same results as if you did uh, DE. So uh, personally, I'm a fan of, of covering my dual reed zone pots. You know, I've done it my last couple of of uh, grows and just having a physical barrier um, over the top of it and like it, um, you know originally the concept was to be able to uh, uh, <clears throat> to encourage fungal growth and flower so I left it open and veg and then uh, when we switched to flower I top dressed with some uh, castings from my worm bin um, and then uh, a little bit of Okashi brand spread out in there. And then I covered it. Uh, so it was completely dark in there. And in, in theory, encourage, uh, encourage fungal growth. But the other thing that it did is it created a physical barrier between the, the plant and the soil in which you, like we talked about before, the some of those insects that like to fall off the plant and reproduce in the soil and crawl back up don't have that ability and it gave me an area to sort of, uh, um, you know, be able to control the immediate area around the stock. So in this case, um, I, I wrapped the plastic like all the way around the stock and then use clips to, to clip it down. So it was right, right snug up against it, but it was real plastic, real light plastic. So it would just be able to, to grow out of it when it needed to. Um, so it would just, just stretch. And so uh, it, it worked really well for me and I feel like it, it provided a, a really nice physical barrier um, that, that didn't really affect uh, beneficial microbes or you know, kill anything off or potentially get in your water or kill your worms or anything yeah. like that, so. Yeah, I just, I just, it doesn't work all that great and it causes too many other issues. So I just, I would have go ahead and just avoid it. Um, we had another question. Sorry, but I was just going to say, if you're going to do anything, just, just try sand if you don't have any better option. Uh, the, only, the only thing I think it would even really work, it might work well on slugs, but beer works better. So, sure. you know, so. Um, you may so, not yeah, have my beer. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess maybe you don't want to give beer to the slugs. I get that. But, um, so, so you really drunk and then whatever beer is left in the morning, give that to the slugs. Right. <laughs> we had another question. Steve, I have a mother plant and the room is staying at 80% humidity, 75 to 80 degrees. Is that going to cause any problems later in the clone's life? Um, I would say as long as that humidity is coming down a little bit at nighttime or you're maintaining those higher temperatures at nighttime, but ideally trying to bring that humidity down at night um, when those temps come down a little bit, that uh, when those lights are off, um, is, is gonna is gonna be help, but there shouldn't be any issues with the clones. I mean, I, I prefer to run my humidity in between 70 and 80 percent during the day uh, in, in the greenhouses I run. So, um, you know, that's that's right where I'm running my stuff. So, hopefully, that helps answer your question. Uh, yeah, always you always think about in propagation, you want higher temps and higher humidity. And different flower. When you flower, you want a little bit lower humidity. You want your lower humidity. You know, and your temps vary whether you're using HDIDs or LEDs. 
So we had another question, um, just released green lace wings, 2000 eggs, brown lace wings, 50 adults, stray Struthamarius punctinium, which I, I'm trying to remember what that is. And then a small outdoor garden, it was just before flower. Any su other suggestions to add now? I mean, at this point, you're pretty much got what you got. Um, you could, I would maybe do Swarovski eye uh, releases just because that'll get you through most of the rest of flower. Um, sorry yep. about that. Um, yeah, but, uh, for Anderson, yeah, either one. I don't know. Well, I don't remember which ones. They're slightly different temperature ranges. Yeah, but uh, but that would be the brown lace wings are a little bit more for cooler weather. So it really just is going to depend on your local climate. Um, uh, DK. So Andersonii is 68 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, okay. There you go. So again, another cooler weather one. Similar, Persimilis likes that cooler weather as well. So we had, um, trying to think of, uh, yeah, so for cocoa growers, the hypoaspis miles will fuck those annoying fungus gnats right up. <laughs> According to chat, um, what else is uh, what else is new in your garden there, Marty? What are you What are you looking? What strains are you gonna start off first? Uh, <clears throat> so I I I think I talked about this a little bit before. I I don't have any left. I already smoked it all, but um, I'm I'm really down with this sunset sherbet. If you haven't tried it yet, you should you should pick it up. Um, I know it's around on the West Coast, relatively popular. Um, so, uh, and then the other one, probably the two, I mean, you know, I always say I'm going to do an entire room of one strain that I never do. Um, so hopefully I'll keep it to just two strains, but I think I'm going to do uh, Wi-Fi and Sunset Sherbert. So that'll be fun. Awesome. Have you tried the Sunset before? I have I've, I've smoked it, but I've never grown it. I haven't grown it. I really enjoy smoking it. It's my favorite, uh, my favorite extract, Sunset Sherbert. It's so good. Nice. Um, I'm trying to see if there's any other questions here in chat. Also, uh, real quick, this um, Swarovski's are 68 to 72 degrees. So, I've seen them do better at much higher temperatures, but um, I don't know if they're breeding or anything, but I know they, they kill shit. That's according to RV code, so. Sure. Well, I, I yeah. They're usually pretty good. Oh, yeah. So. Um, well, here they know also that it can remain active down to 60 degrees but it prefers 77 to 85 and 70% humidity. So that's going to be key because especially if you're trying, if you're outdoors, which I think the original question from the person they were outdoors would be to keep an eye on your humidity. But like if you're, if you're an organ right now, you're probably, you know, maintaining a, a, a relatively high humidity just uh, over the last couple of weeks in the, so do you want to uh, tell them about the class we have coming up? Well, sure. So we got a uh, four-day 
commercial aquaponic cannabis class. We'll, we'll basically be talking about all the same stuff we were talking about tonight, except for extremely in-depth, uh, hands-on. You can come here in person uh, and check out the new system that I am building right now, um, uh, which is, I would say, like 40% uh, complete. <laughs> so uh, that's going to be... Uh, a lot of fun. We're also going to go way more in depth on making nutrients like we talked about before. So we're going to cover everything we normally cover in the two-day class, which we talk about as like aquaponics 101 and cannabis 101. So really, if you don't know anything about either one, you can take the two-day class and really just kind of get the basics uh, of both of them. Um, so in the four-day class, we're also going to extend that out. To, uh, Steve's got a ton of like greenhouse design stuff, some really cool um, kind of geothermal, um, but, but not nearly as elaborate as like commercial scale stuff, things that you can do in a, in a decent sized greenhouse, let's say. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting stuff on that. We're going to talk about tons about beneficial bugs. We've got microscopes, we've got scopes, we've got cameras. Uh, so we are going to have it online as well. So if you're not able to make it out here to Gold Hill, Oregon, which is in uh, Southern Oregon, just outside of Medford, um, then you're you're welcome to take the class online. And so we'll have, again, multiple cameras. We'll have microscopes that will hook up to the computer. You'll be able to see the, the all of those feeds. Um, so I will be uh, running around, switching cameras and stuff, uh, and making sure that you guys on the online side are able to take part in everything and kind of see what's going on. So um, yeah, we're gonna have, have lots of fun. So we're gonna release some beneficial bugs. Um, we'll probably, uh, you know, maybe collect some uh, IMO samples from around here and maybe mess around with a little bit of KNF stuff. We're gonna take a look at my existing worm bins. Um, I just collected a bunch of, uh, of fallen apples. Uh, that I'm adding to a worm bin that will, that's basically the only thing that I'm gonna add to it. So uh, I'm gonna shoot a video on that pretty soon and uh, upload it to YouTube and then we'll be able to take a look uh, at the results of that uh, at the class. Um, so that, that's gonna be an interesting little, little project that I wanna tie into that, uh, to the class there. So it'll be uh, four days. <clears throat> it's the 17th to the 20th, right Steve? Yep. So 17th to the 20th, um, I guess I'm just outside of Medford. So if you want to fly in, there's a, the Medford International Airport, because I think we fly to Canada or some shit. No offense, Canadians. Um, but uh, anyway, it, it is, uh, you can fly in directly into Medford, and that's only about 20 minute drive uh, right here from my house. We're right off of I 5, so you guys that want to uh, drive. Um, relatively easy access um, can definitely uh, find lots of places to stay I, uh, there's like airbnbs and stuff all around here uh, you know the road river is right down there next to the freeway i can hear the freeway if i turn my fan off right now um not but not not too bad so we have 11 and a half acres here we're gonna um, have a flower room online have the nursery online be able to take a look at some of my different little cloning projects. Um, I've got a nice outdoor patio here that we're gonna have a projector set up. And like I talked about before, we're, we're gonna be looking at samples under 
uh, Steve's microscope. I've got a digital microscope here we'll be using to look at releasing the beneficials, how to use them. A lot of the questions that you guys are asking tonight uh, will be covered uh, in depth and interactive. So the online people will be in a group, just like we're in a group right here. Uh, basically, just like the podcast panel, uh, you'll be on there. If you want to be on video, uh, you can be on video. If you want to be on audio, you can be on audio. Uh, we'll probably ask you to mute your microphone uh, if you're um, not talking. Uh, but for the most part, it's going to be interactive, just like the panel is right now, where you can ask questions. Um, and we can even reposition cameras or show you uh, exactly what we're talking about. And I'm really excited. This is going to be the first class at the at the new house where I have a ton more resources than like my front porch and my garage. was <laughs> well, not a lot of area to be able to do all the stuff that I wanted to. So it's going to be exciting to have uh, uh, not only a number of people here in person, but to also uh, be able to live stream it um, to people that can't make it uh, at the same time. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun and I can't wait. Yeah, I, uh, I have a whole new section I'm working on on viral diseases, um, so that we'll cover that. And especially with some of the stuff we're just starting to learn the last few months about um, lettuce. Uh, there's a lot of a whole group of viruses, particularly pertaining around um, butterhead lettuce and romaine lettuces, that actually transfers really well to hemp. Um, that could be potentially latent in some people's aquaponic systems if they're shifting them over. Um, you know, they will need to take efforts to mitigate that before replanting. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, you could very easily transfer that directly into your hemp crop, which while it may be a minor annoyance in lettuce, uh, when you have something that grows for three months instead of one, um, you know, it, it can have a pretty big, you know, dramatic effect on yield. So, um, you know, this is, is stuff we're just learning now. and. Uh, uh, especially working with lots of different farms, um, you know, I get a chance to see this kind of stuff. And uh, I know many people in chat here have had a chance to take the class. And uh, I know Roger here as well has taken the class. And um, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, it's also been featured in High Times, a bunch of other places. And, you know, we're, we're really going to go in depth and cover more in, in the beneficial insects and the microbials, especially uh, added some stuff just from what I've learned this year, working on a couple of bigger scale operations. and. You know, always adding to the class, you know, every single time Marty and I teach the class, uh, we both update it. I know Marty sometimes gets irked at me because I'll suddenly be like, hey, I added 50 slides last night. And he'll be like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's like we already can't, you know, half the time it's gotten to the point now because that happens every time. I don't, we've been doing this a little while now, but every time we we gather new stuff and, and really a lot due to the, the podcast, really. Oh, yeah. So it's great guests. And we have great, great topics of conversation with really intelligent people, sometimes even with opposing views. And then um, that always ends up creating new content that goes into the class. And so, you know, each time it gets better, but also every, it gets to the point where you're kind of like a, you know, a movie director or producer who has to edit a movie, you know, like, well, if we're gonna put this scene in, which is really great and new and fresh, and we need this information, what are we going to take out? Because it's still the same two-day class. And so this is going to be like the, the extended version 
uh, you know, like the four hour epic Lord of the Rings movie version of the class that we can finally just, you know, do do everything over four days. Otherwise, I feel like no matter what in the two day class, we end up going down the areas that people want to know about based on who's in the class. So it's kind of like, uh, um, you know, it's great that we can adapt the class to, to the people that are there and what they have questions about. Um, you know, maybe certain topics everybody already knows in some situations. Not, you know, usually we have a, a, a pretty wide variety of people in the class at the same time. But occasionally there's areas of common knowledge and we don't need to spend as much time on it. But when you get to the point now where we've added so much stuff that we we needed to extend it out and be able to cover everything really in depth because we have so much new stuff. Absolutely. And, and we also go more, you know, in the beginning, we have a whole section on business and, you know, how to set up your business for success and some of the stuff that people do wrong on the business end. And, and we talk about licensing and we talk about a lot of the challenges that Marty and I have gone through with various other, you know, trying to get a company off the ground as part of the staff or consulting on companies or, or other stuff. And we kind of go through quite a few different things that have happened that help save you a lot of issues and, and save you a lot of time and help you, um, you know, not have to deal with some of the stuff that we've witnessed and, and uh, been consulted to come in and fix and all kinds of numerous things that uh, we, we've run into over the years. Yeah, I mean, just accumulated knowledge, you know, and again, there's so, so much information in all of the podcasts. And so if you're someone who's looking for free content, um, you know, there. Pick pick a person or a topic and be able to go go through it and and listen to someone like if you're really interested in probiotics, listening to someone like Alan um, Atkinson who's been on two or three times now, talking about you know Grokashi and his methods and he has a great Facebook group uh, called the Probiotic Farmers Alliance. Um, you know you can you can get wealth of information there elaine ingram wealth of information there soil food web just like the extent that you can um that you can find a free content that, that's there and already online and available to stream that that that's great that's a great uh thing but it also takes hours to go through it all so that's kind of the nice part about this is that you can if you want to get it in like a concentrated uh four day here's the stuff that you need to know the latest information um, from from even uh, old information from when we first started the podcast. Some of the early episodes we've learned, at least I have learned a ton since then. Uh, I didn't even know what labs were <laughs> when we started the podcast. Like I had no, no concept of them whatsoever. I didn't um, know what green natural farming was when we started yeah. the podcast. And to think about how incorporated those things are now into what I do, um, you know, it, it's just, it's crazy to think how, how fast all of that has, has developed, um, in, in information that really wasn't available previous to that, at least documented. And I mean, uh, I, I've seen a lot of stuff on like, uh, like the, its effect on growing plants. Like you can definitely find older information on that, but using it as like any sort of like a, 
Um, well, actually, I did find one article about using it in aquaculture, where they were using it to break down essentially fish waste. It was from like 1986 or something like that. I'll see if I can find it again. But I don't know, you're, Steve, you are big into aquaculture. Have you ever heard of dosing labs for no, fish no. I know there. I know there's some people that have done some work in China or Japan um, or Thailand or somewhere in Asia. There, there is a couple of studies um, that I'm aware that exist, but I don't, I don't remember what was in them. But I know that um, uh, Kentucky State University, in fact, Joe Pate, he's been on the uh, George Pate has been on the, on the podcast as a guest. Uh, I just saw him over in, when I was in Kentucky. They did a study with uh, with labs and found it makes the fish grow 10 to 15% faster, the plants grow 15 to 20% faster, uh, and it's, um, uh, we, I've used it on multiple occasions uh, as my recommendation for, uh, aside from their study, I've used it um, uh, because uh, with a couple of clients to treat E. coli. And what I mean by that is, is that there a lot, it's really common for aquaponic systems to have, to test positive for um, non-food, food, uh, non-human pathogenic E. coli. And uh, you can use labs to eliminate that and, and consume it so that you, you don't, you know, you'll pass your, your food safety testing when they test the water. And uh, I, I honestly do think, though, that, you know, probiotic regimens are, are going to be the future food safety in aquaponics and, and all hydroponics, you know, uh, anyone using a, a hydro solution because it's the safest and cheapest way to do it on scale. You know, when you're scaling things to, you know, acres, it's, it's the cheapest solution. And it works the best, you know, it keeps up with the evolutionary arms race most of the time. And you can't say 100% of the time, but it works most of the time. <laughs> well, it was interesting when we had, was it the, the guy from, is it Kentucky State or Kentucky University? I don't remember which one, sorry. Yep. It's probably been since one or the other, I don't know. Or both. I never get it right either, it's fine. KSU. Okay. The, the gentleman from KSU, they were, they were specifically looking at uh, essentially pathogens in aquaponics and dosing with labs and its effectiveness on it. And they were talking about how even after introducing, what was it E. coli? Yeah. That they couldn't even find it to, to observe it again afterwards like after they introduced it to the bed, <clears throat> coming back to try and combine it later, it was just gone. Sorry, I was muted, but um, yeah, exactly. Everybody I've introduced or we've introduced to labs that I know or KNF and have used any of those inputs, the simpler stuff, not necessarily getting into the IMO or anything yet, but just the labs, everybody claims they see these massive uh, improvement in their plants, you know, with, with labs and some FPJ you know, and yeah. stuff like that. It's just real nice. And, and, and I always have to laugh because Steve can tell you the Latin names of 12 million different things, but he can't remember Kentucky State University. Someone just asked me to clarify 100% of the time. It works most of the time. Um, yeah. To date, it works 100% of the time to treat the E. coli. Um, what, what, I, what I meant by most of the time was 
is the fact that the right currently lactobacillus is a big evolutionary one up on E. coli and can feed on it. You know, at some point in the future, you know, in theory, in theory, that it, it will catch up, and it, you know what I mean. And, and suddenly, it will have a harder time. But as far as we're aware right now, in fact, there was actually a really cool study with Lactobacillus acid bacteria, where they used it to treat a meat processing facility in place of uh, ethanol and uh, bleach, and they found that the Lactobacillus uh, actually had a lower um, bacterial count than the uh, um, alcohol or the bleach uh, clean facilities when they ran the same test. So, um, and you can look that up, that, that's on scholar.google.com. Uh, just look up meat processing facility lactobacillus study uh, and, and you'll find it. That was one of the more interesting studies I found in terms of, uh, you know, proving how, how gnarly this thing can clean up. I mean, it, if it can clean up a slaughterhouse, um, you know, an aquaponic system is nowhere near as bad as a slaughterhouse, you know. Super right. bacteria. Yeah, it's, it's bacteria to the max. Yep. Back to the black worms. I gotta know. I gotta know more about that because. Yeah, I like that too. One, one of the biggest issues I see in aquaponics that people have: um, systems doing great. It's two or three years in, and then all of a sudden it crashes. And typically that happens because either they do something stupid, or they end up with a situation where one of the beds isn't flowing well so they get they get a dead zone that becomes uh anaerobic and you said that these worms will eat the anaerobic area eat the stuff out of that and, and oxygenate it and, and make it uh come back to it so i want to hear more about that because that's something i'd love to share with people uh, i don't care if i make a penny off of it I, i'm more concerned with helping people in the long run so tell us more About the black worms specifically? Absolutely. The black worms and how they do what they do. Because that, that's, I mean, I only caught a part of what, what was being said earlier. So, I, so I'm looking for worms, more information. Sure, I'll cover them again. So black worms, you can get at most of your local tropical aquarium stores. And black worms love to feed on the bacteria and, and other things that live on anaerobic waste areas. So if you have fish waste that's, the, the bottom, you know, deep part of your, your grow beds, um, you can actually apply these black worms and you just put them in right where the water comes into your grow bed so they can chase the water down. And they'll get down into that, that sludgy area at the very bottom of your grow beds. It's kind of really hard to clean out. Um, and the, the lactobacillus bacteria will, will clean up a lot of that, but they'll only get so much, you know, they'll still have some grit and some sand and some other stuff that kind of locks down in there with the sludge. And this really helps with the uh, um, um, providing that uh, uh, a way to break that up. So the black worms will get down in there and channel into those zones and, and get some fresh oxygenated water in there behind them and, uh, and, and allow those areas to get broken up so that once the fresh oxygenated water gets in, now I can bring in you know, the other microbes that are living in there and mineralizing things and starts to start breaking that area down and preventing those anaerobic zones from starting to raise the pH or, or growing you know, gra you know, pathogenic um, uh, you know, microbes and other issues. So it really can be a, a really wonderful way to 
combine that with with your labs and everything else you know the labs doesn't have any negative effect on them uh, and um, it really is a, a great way to um, uh, you know as like a one-two punch with the lactobacillic acid bacteria to to keep those beds from some getting you know too too filled with fish waste and um, you know especially if you know, a lot of people overfeed their fish or don't have adequate filtration or you know any other combination thereof and or they have you know grow beds i know um you know friendly aquaponics nelson and pave uh, a couple of others really have a lot of inadequate filtration um with their raft designs and they have you know end up with these huge thick sludge layers i see it all the time in commercial operations and you know dosing with lactobacillic acid bacteria dosing with blackworms dosing with these other and, and even um uh, you know, Cardinia, Neocardinia, freshwater shrimps, the you know, cherry shrimp, cardinal shrimps, um, uh, crystal shrimps, uh, those guys can be, you know, really good as well uh, as a combination for just biological treatment without having to rely on, you know, something that might, you know, void your organic certification. You know, if you're just using living organisms, you know, we're still not using anything that's disallowed by the organic certification board. Um, you know, so this allows us to meet, you know, even the most strict requirements, especially with cannabis, um, you know, cannabis makes organic look like a, a cakewalk. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing tissue sampling on, you know, for every 10 pounds. In fact, we just talked about this at the Aquaponics Association's conference. Um, they, they had kind of a jam session at the end on, hey, what are some stuff? And everyone's really panicked about this Canadian uh, uh, gap certification stuff getting pulled. And I said, what are you guys worried about? I said, you guys have two people in the room. Um, they had the green relief guys and, and myself that have access to numerous amounts of data on on legal, you know, legally sellable cannabis in Canada that has been tested for microbials and tissue. And you have other people in the United States that have tissue samples for aquaponically grown cannabis um, and, and have all of this data available to present to, to the, the Health Canada on on the food safety of this. We, we've been testing this all the time. We have to by law, you know, so how many pounds of, of material would they like samples for before they're satisfied? Because, and, and because of the scrutiny of our industry, you know, all for all, and what I think is really funny is for all the years that, that people kind of looked in the aquaponics industry, and there's a lot of people that really don't like the fact that people grow cannabis with it. And a lot of people that kind of look down on it, you know, it's gonna end up being the cannabis industry that saves it. You know, because we're the ones with these mountain of data on, on the food safety and the testing and the microbial testing on the tissue, you know, and, and it's really funny to just to see the whole thing come full circle where, where the, the people that were kind of the black sheep are now the ones that have, you know, the ability to save everyone's skin on the, uh, and keep everyone, you know, still operating. Because right now in Canada, they want to start pulling people's ability to, to sell to the public, even for vegetables right now and in, in March if something isn't done and it's, you know, really, really kind of something that to see how this all comes together, but it's going to end up, you know, thankfully the cannabis industry has mountains and mountains of data, uh, data to back this all up and prove that it's safe because it is, and we know it is. And again, this goes back to best practices. Someone else in chat asked about um, what is my opinion on Korean natural farming and aquaponics. Korean natural farming is one of the best things that has happened to the aquaponics industry in terms of methodology and I know both Marty and myself use a, a ton of different um, aquaponic methods um, to uh, uh, our blah, 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 ton of different KNF methods to boost our uh, 
our aquaponics stuff. In fact, uh, me, myself and Chris Trump did a video uh, over at the uh, Regenerative Conference. It's available on Future Cannabis Project. Um, yeah, a little tongue-tied tonight. Um, over on the Future Cannabis Project, uh, you can actually check it out. Chris Trump and I did a whole video on aquaponics and green natural farming. Um, so if anyone else is uh, interested, check that out. And uh, Marty and I both have a ton of videos on different KNF methods for aquaponics specifically on our YouTubes as well. Uh, Roger, I think you had a, another question or two. Which, which, uh, which Roger? You. Uh, my last one was about the worms. Um, I don't remember the next one. I'm, I apologize. Oh, you're fine. I just figured I'd give you a chance. Uh, it's getting to be about that time. Oh, right? somebody had asked uh, on, on the uh, YouTube channel, somebody had said something about KDM. What the heck is that? Oh, Jadam? Yes, apparently. J-A-D-A-M. So Jadam is, is like a different methodology for Korean natural farming. Um, and uh, there's a whole book on it. Um, that you can do Jadam, you, you can do Jadam wrong and make pathogens too, um, just just as a heads up. But uh, uh, Marty, I don't really make Jadam. Marty's probably a better person to ask, and I think he just took off. So, uh, and I do uh, apologize for that. But um, but it, it's a different type of Korean natural farming. There's a book on it uh, if you're interested in reading more on it. I do a lot of fermented plants. If people are looking for more ideas on how to get more nutrients for their system, um, check out buildasoil.com. has a really awesome, um, you know, mineral nutrients from plant sources uh, spreadsheet, and you can use that, you know, along with FP, you know, to make FPJs or to make lab serums uh, and take those plants and, and add those to those to ferment them to further unlock those minerals. And that can be a great, or, or hormones or whatever it is you're trying to get out of that. And that can be a great way to experiment, uh, you know, if you're looking for a, a something way to change up what you're working with at home. Um, you know, think about Korean natural farming and ferments more of as a machine to unlock nutrients and a mineralization method similar to how a, um, a compost tea brewer works. You have, you know, you put in some inputs and you get out, you know, much more bioavailable outputs. Um, you know, think of it that way, and you'll end up, you know, making some really cool stuff when you start experimenting. Um, and uh, and uh, without giving you guys away uh, all kinds of goodies that I shouldn't be sharing too much of, but uh, but you guys can definitely uh, do some experimenting in that direction and find some pretty nifty things for sure. Alrighty. Um, I think we'll start to wrap up the show. Um, do you want to tell everybody how to find you there, uh, either one of you, Rogers? Absolutely. Trocoponics.com. Uh, come see us. Uh, if you don't want to buy anything, that's fine. We're not there for that. Um, but if you need something, we're there for you. Got questions, ask us. If we don't know the answer, we'll find somebody with the answer. Um, and by God, get your grow on. Um, what about uh, other Roger? What about you, Roger? Go ahead. 
What? Oh, his mic's not working. I think he's talking, but it's, I can see his mouth moving, but nothing's nothing's coming out. So, well, um, you guys can see more. Well, I got him. it. I figured yeah. it out. Go ahead. Hello. All yep. right. Sorry, I keep having the trouble with the muting button on this Zoom because of, um, it's on the on my laptop tonight, and it's really small in the corner. Um, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, you can find me, uh, Latewood. And, and when Roger's on, you can just call me Latewood. That's what everybody knows me in the cannabis industry that up to this point, uh, till I started the show and you always called me Roger. So I just, that's why I put up a Roger Latewood for future reference. Uh, but anyway, uh, you can find me at I love uh, Instagram. And I really prefer, I love to get messages and invitations to groups and on Facebook, um, you know, we hang out a little bit at, I don't go over there, but I'm, well, I'm real busy. I'm doing paperwork for, uh, for my, you know, to get my farm licensed um, under a, a corporate, a co well, not corporation, but a farm that's already licensed. And uh, that's pretty much it that you can catch me at any of those. Uh, I just want to say this, it's pretty inter interesting. I didn't find out till two or three days ago, which is kind of a bummer, but they're having a big major conference with 20 speakers of phds and doctors at the medical university of south carolina tomorrow all day long a big time thing talking about all the benefits with all these doctors are coming in talking about all the benefits about oh, using cannabis cool. in your, on uh, your uh, prescription yeah. pad me and uh me and mrs dread were at uh, um oklahoma state university today they had a little cannabis symposium thing it was pretty neat well, yeah, huge, cool. but it was he just went out to support them and uh, yeah it's cool hard to believe i actually lived to see it you know there's actually right here out in the open like we were somebody was mentioning earlier and there's 20 high level doctors coming to talk about cannabis and all the effects it has all the all throughout all kind of medicine it's going to be really interesting i i'm not going to get to go because of transportation issues I was yeah. offered a ticket, but I can't go because the transportation issue, but my partner's going just so we can keep up on things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, from the right. Carolina Canna connection. And uh, that's going to be pretty cool. So that's about all I wanted to share tonight. And, you know, we're just trying to keep up with everything else. Um, and uh, what else is it? Oh, and if anyone wants to come see me, I will be at the California Cannabis Business Association's conference in. Um, October 8th, uh, I believe I speak at 10 a.m. Um, so if you're going to be in Long Beach, California, come out and check out the talk. And um, yeah, we'll be doing some other cool stuff while we're in L.A., saying hello to some old friends and some new ones and doing some cool videos while we're there. So that'll be fun. And then, uh, yeah, we got some other cool stuff that we're cooking up. Um, uh, one word is um, what at some point in the next three to four months, you might end up moving the show to a recorded version for at least half of the shows. We might do like um, one of the day of the week where we do like a recorded and do a premiere um, just because of the scheduling. Um, when I tell you where I'm going, you'll understand um, because it will be very weird for me to do it at the current time. Um, so if I can only have to do that once a week instead of two, I will, uh, uh, you know, it makes my life a hell of a lot easier. So um, we'll get to that when we get to there, but uh, that'll come in time. So in the meantime, we will catch you guys 
on Tuesday. Um, we have the gentleman from Easy Clone who was unable to make it last week. He will be on on Tuesday. And uh, uh, and I forget, we have somebody cool lined up for Thursday already, but I forget who it is. I do apologize. I will have to look at the Okay, in, in overtime, just, just saying, uh, who's Mrs. Dredd? Who's that? Oh. Mrs. Mrs. Dredd is new yeah. mama. Who, who's the hot chick? Come on, tell us. My, I, I guarantee you, if I don't know and Terry asks, me and you are both getting our butts kicked. Uh, I'll have to tell you once we're offline. Um, <laughs> uh, no, you, you have to do it now or call me. I mean, because she's going to uh, ask in a few minutes. Just wait till after the show. Uh, this. Uh, okay, wait. Uh, yeah, well, you haven't met my wife, have you? No. My wife will you kick find, your butt. You can you can find the podcast uh, on YouTube live uh, every Tuesday and Thursday evening. We try to, we, we don't hit every time, but we do our best. And um, you can also find it on your favorite podcast app, SoundCloud, iTunes, um, you know, iHeartRadio, a whole bunch of other places, Spotify. So uh, you can you can always uh, find us there. So um, we will catch you guys again on Tuesday. Um, please, if you're oh, also uh, if you're in Oklahoma, uh, check out. There's a couple of cool events. There's a Korean natural farming uh, two day workshop in Tulsa. Um, uh, you can check that out. I don't remember the details, but if you're listening to this live, or before the weekend, um, go check it out. It's always, uh, always good to support some some uh, students of uh, Chris Trump and uh, support the Korean natural farming movement. And then, uh, yeah, and we'll uh, we'll catch you guys again soon. Cheers. <laughs>